Hi, this is Elmore Leonard. I'm I'm listening to Film Sociology, and and uh, it's it's a real program. It's great. It's time to hear what's good, what's bad, and what's ugly at the multiplex and the art house. What's new on video and streaming? And you might also hear about some dead people we like. We don't have time for dead people we don't like. <laughs> anyway, this is Film Sociology, where you'll find out what's the next cinematic marvel. It was unbelievable. <laughs> and what's just a movie? Shut up! My God, you have no freaking life! Okay, here's your host and my dad, Matthew Sosi. Hello there, film lovers. Welcome to Film Sociology, a film podcast here at WFYI.org. If you have a question or a comment, you can email me at msocey, that's M-S-O-C-E-Y, at WFYI.org. I'm also on Facebook, also on Twitter, at Matthew Sosey. The show is available as a podcast. It's also available on iTunes, and I believe... The powers that be told me, well, not directly, that all of the podcast shows here at WFYI are now available on Spotify. So if you're into that sort of thing, you can go do that. I'm going to take the word for it because I still have CDs and DVDs in the studio and, and Blu-rays right now. Joining me in studio, we uh, we have we have a big film to talk about, and it's Sam Watermeyer of the Midwest Film Journal coming and hanging out with me. Hi, Sam. Hey, how's it going? It's going well. It's been, I think the last time I saw you was at the screening of this. So, yes, yes it was. Um, we are, as, as I've mentioned on last week's show when Evan was here, we are in first world problems. Screeners are, being, are starting to get sent to us in a flourish so we can get ready for our big clandestine meeting of the Indiana Film Journalists Association. It's a brutal bunch, folks. And uh, anyway, that being said, I have... The the big film we're going to talk about is The Irishman, the the new Scorsese epic. Which yes, it's it it'll be on Netflix. I forget when it's when's it coming out on Netflix. If the twenty seventh. The twenty seventh, but it hits theaters this weekend. You got to look, and it's three and a half hours, so you really have to look. I know it's at the Arts Place on the North Side where they make the cocktails and there's real butter. So you know you know where that is, <laughs> uh, Keystone Arts. Uh, but there, there, we have become. Addicted, obviously, to streaming, to Netflix. Of course, we we are still in the uh, the afterglow of Disney Plus. And no, I have not. If mm. if Emma was younger, we probably would, but she's not, so we didn't. Um, so the convenience, obviously, of streaming and and seeing stuff at home. Um, I, I want to say thank you to the powers that be that were able to arrange a screening of The Irishman in a legitimate theater. Um, there's still we are film critics there is still a thing about seeing a movie in a movie theater. The theater is a gathering place as Mrs. Sosi has said many times. And you know when when it's a great experience it can be a great experience. Now granted we, we it, what we attended was a press screening so it was just us. So we don't have to deal with well I'm one of the loudest ones there. But but as far as electronics and children and rudeness well it's it's film criticism. It's film critic rude and it's different than regular rude trust me uh but that being said it's still an experience it's still an experience to behold in a in a dark giant room with a bunch of people one hopes so um so i was happy to be able to see this on the big screen and and obviously we get screeners but we whenever possible to see a film on the big screen it's just going to have a bigger effect that being said um the film the irishman is is scorsese's 
it's not. I guess one would say mobster trilogy, even mm-hmm. though it is distinctly different than Goodfellas and Casino. Robert De Niro is back with Scorsese once more, which is kind of what I asked for. I've been asked for that for a while. Um, De Niro is a uh, is a low level guy who works his way up the ladder and becomes the right hand man for Jimmy Hoffa, played by Al Pacino, and uh, and then he is torn. Uh, emotionally, his dedication toward uh, Jimmy Hoffa, or his dedication toward the organization, hmm. capital T, capital O. We'll just kind of leave that there for a moment. Um, as I, I, full disclosure, and I think I've said this many times on the show, Scorsese is my favorite director, and for a long time, probably after Casino, I, I've said. I just want one more collaboration because they're both getting up there in age. Um, they they have taken di- different paths. I know uh, Scorsese's done a lot of films with DiCaprio, and De Niro will do anything at this point. I mean, the man constantly works. I get it. I, I understand that. It, and it's not just because he's helping finance the Tribeca Film Festival. I don't think he's doing films with Curtis Jackson for that. I think he's just working, and he's of an age. I understand that. But I, I, I wanted one more collaboration with them. I wanted one more home run from De Niro and one more home run from Pacino. And this is the first time Pacino is being directed by Scorsese. Yes, that happens. And I guess we also get a collaboration between Pacino and De Niro that is not Righteous Kill. So, you know, congrats on that. Is this a home run? No. I would I, I would even ask for a stand-up triple. I like to mix my my sports and my arts. <laughs> If anything, I would I would say that for me, The Irishman is a sliding safe triple, which means very good, but not great. Um, when I say it's not like Casino or Goodfellas, because I, I remember seeing Casino a couple of times in the theaters when it came out in 95, and my first impression was it's Goodfellas Goes West. A lot of people did that. Um the type of voiceover storytelling and the wall-to-wall music, I get that. But there was really two different stories going on in Casino. One was about um, De Niro's character working his way in the casino business, dealing with the old school and his work and Joe Pesci's work, and then this kind of bizarre love triangle between De Niro, Pesci, and Sharon Stone. This one has the similar storytelling, and it has some of the music, but it doesn't rattle your senses compared to the other two films. It also clocks in at three and a half hour, over three and a half hours. I think it's like 345, I remember seeing that. And uh, to borrow a term from Lou Harry, one of our fellow critics, he sat through 50-minute fringe shows that were more exhausting than this. And I think when you have Thelma Schumacher as your, as your editor and longtime editor, Kudos to her for keeping the film moving. My my uh, my behind was not tired when when this film was was all said and done. Uh, Sam, your 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 thoughts. I've I've gabbed a bit. Um, well, usually uh, after a Scorsese movie, I'm just blown away. My jaws on the floor. The first Scorsese movie I ever saw in a theater was The Aviator. Really? Yeah. Man, you're young. <laughs> wow. Um, I okay. was in I was in junior high and I was just blown <laughs> away. Uh with this one, I wasn't quite uh blown away in the end. I, it it kind of grew on me. Mhm. Um and I think its strongest uh part is definitely the 
masterful slow burn of the second act. Yeah, there's and and it's a plot point we don't want to really give away. But if you know any history about um about Pacino's character, you you kind of got an idea. Yeah. So, but apparently this is for the mall crowd. I'm not telling. We're not telling you what it is. <laughs> but yeah, there is a really long stretch about a particular moment in history. And uh, that's probably, it's funny, I think it's the flip side of Hank Hill's, Henry Hill's Last Day of Freedom uh, from Goodfellas. It's a kind of a quieter version of that. So, because it is, there's almost no music and it, you are going through a, a process. I guess that's, that's a vague enough term. But anyway, please continue. Um, well, I think that, uh, I don't really think this is giving anything away, but I think you can really feel the, the weight of a whacking in this movie. Um, <laughs> Thank you. That's the, a, that's a book title somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you get the sense that for Joe Pesci's character, uh, a whack job is, you know, a painful last resort for him. Yep. Um, and he's, he kind of plays the antithesis of what he usually plays, um, you know, in Goodfellas and Casino, he's kind of a loose cannon. Always, yeah. Uh, in this movie, he's very subdued. It's it's a really surprising, surprisingly subdued performance. I think also the fact that he's been in quote unquote retirement for a while. I've, I haven't checked to see what was the last thing he did before kind of going into seclusion. Was it The Good Shepherd? I will have. I will check that while you uh, while you gab. Okay. <laughs> Um, and actually, uh, you know, you mentioned Casino earlier. It kind of has a similar love triangle um, between. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know. Well, I think me him being torn between the yeah his friendship with Hoffa, De Niro's character's friendship with Hoffa, and his devotion to the to the business to right. to his bosses. Um, and uh, I, you know. Near the end, um, he kind of surprisingly doesn't seem that remorseful. There's a scene where a priest asks him, you know, how do you feel about the families of the men you killed? And he just says, well, I didn't know the families. So it's interesting. It, uh, Scorsese kind of shows the crooked moral code of mobsters. Like, they're not crazy about killing their friends, but other wise guys are kind of faceless to them. Right. And, yeah, it does, without giving away a whole lot, it, it does end on a really somber note. And Scorsese is one, if you know his films, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, Italian Catholicism, or just regular Catholicism, really. There's a lot of Catholicism. And there's a lot of sin and redemption and guilt. And, and man, uh, there's, there's some that, uh, that basically he's got to live with. And yeah. that, that, that happens in this. All right, I checked uh, IMDb. He has hot... IMDb clicking action here at Film Sociology. Um, man, you know, just this the timeline. There was that period, you know, after he won the Oscar in the 90s, Joe Pesci had no business starring in films. He, he's better <laughs> coming as a sideman, really, than because really, Go Fishing and uh, Eight Heads in a Duffel Bag with Honors. What? Masterpieces. Yeah, okay. uh, Bronx. T- well, no, Jimmy Hollywood. Nobody asked for that. Maybe The Public Eye. And yeah, I know my cousin Vinny. Fine. Yeah. But, um, Good Shepherd was 2006, and then I forgot he did a Love Ranch. That was a Taylor Hackford film with he, Joe Pesci and Helen Mirren about uh, bordellos in Nevada. Wow, I don't remember that. That's 2010. 
He was a voice in the English version, English language version of A Warrior's Tale from 2015, a video short, Google Assistant, Home Alone Again, mm. and and then this. So yeah, um, it, it there's a. There's a section, and it's fun to watch De Niro and Pesci again, especially as uh, at the begin, the, near the beginning of the film, as they are older guys. Uh, De Niro's character drives Pesci's character uh, partially across the country, in part because they they don't like to fly, they don't like to take trains, and the wives have to smoke and <laughs> all that. But uh, but yeah, it is a really restrained performance from Pesci, and I think it's one that's going to get a lot of talk if it hasn't already. The other thing that the that the film is known for, and I, I, I st- I'm still kind of in a way stunned that this is his biggest budget for a film, but the use of CG. Mm. So, um, if there's if there's anything that people can sharpen their knives on is is the CGI effect. And and yes, we know he talked about the Marvel films, whatever. Uh, <laughs> but we're not, we're not gonna get into we're that. not gonna get into that okay. because. Just, it's been talked about. Yeah, already. and yeah. sit. You know what? Sit on your pile of cash. You're doing fine. He's, <laughs> you, you know, I don't think the Marvel films are taking a hit anyway. Right. Uh, but there's there's some early flashbacks where they use some CG de aging on De Niro. I guess on Pesci, and, and obviously on Pesci, and uh, and a little bit on Pacino. The 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 first couple moments of De Niro with dark hair and the eyes are a little too blue. And and I just thought you couldn't you couldn't hire Jason Clark right. maybe to play young De Niro just like Robert De Niro won an Oscar forty years ago for playing young Marlon Brando. Uh, <laughs> thank God they didn't have CG back in the seventies. Right. Um, that being said, it, it it it's a little jarring at first, but like if you if if you've ever watched a sporting event through a fence, your eyes adjust. That's interesting. And yeah. it's not – it's it's a step above the – I know people complain about the dead-eye animation of Robert Zemeckis mm. with stuff like Christmas Carol and Polar Express. And I think it's a little above that. But I actually – my eyes actually adjusted to it. So it's not as distracting. But I'm sure there are other eyes that were uh, found it either one way or the other in a further direction. Sam, your, your thoughts on de-aging Robert De Niro and company. Well, back to Zemeckis, the animation and flight was amazing. It really mm. looked just like Denzel Washington. I mean, <laughs> Smart guy. <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, yeah, it was a little jarring. I made kind of a jab in my review that, you know, it's ironic that Scorsese is dismissing Marvel movies as, like, theme park films when it's sort of an amusement park spectacle to see a digitally de-aged um, <laughs> yeah. De Niro. Yep. Um, I don't know if the technology's quite there yet. It always leaves me at a slight distance, and I always find it a little creepy and off-putting. Like, uh, I found uh, Peter Cushing in Rogue One really weird. Uh, see, that's that's that wasn't called for. Yeah. Really, that's. I mean, I I guess the uh, uh, an example of it, and I can't. I I'm I'm babbling now. Sorry, but I thought of. Um, I think they did a little bit of CG when Oliver Reed died while they were filming Gladiator. Now I know they used some hmm. outtakes. But I would have – I need to go back. Or if somebody can send me the link or the note, uh, if they know offhand more than I do at this moment. But I think they did a little bit of CG for him, and I'm sure they did some – like I said, some outtakes and some angled shots. Not quite like Bruce Lee and Kiss of Death. Um, 
But yeah, I'm waiting for the yeah. I'm, I guess we're still waiting for the moment where CG happens and we don't notice it. Now it it doesn't help that we knew this was happening. We were actually as critics, I think we were all kind of waiting for it to see what we would think. They're all we're all there with our pens, and like yeah, <laughs> yeah, okay. So yeah, um, the other thing that's been brought up, and I've, uh, there are certain critics in town, and it's not just the, the IFJA. Um, that has brought this up. Um, I didn't mind the the lack, basically the reaction performance from um, Anna Paquin. From Anna Paquin, <laughs> I am a terrible critic. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. No. Um, Paquin plays De Niro's daughter as an adult, and uh, it we we have we've had two supporting actress performances that were almost silent films performances you had Margot Robbie in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and in this one and uh many actors have said and and I remember being taught this in in acting school that we were told that 90% of acting is reacting hmm. so the fact that Anna Paquin's character knows what dad's up to that's I think that's potent enough well and isn't the the biggest punishment for your father it would be to not speak to him yeah, and there's a there's a heartbreaking scene in a bank that's that's pretty effective. So yeah, like, so um, I th- yeah, I think the silence is you know purposeful. I, I don't think uh, she was her her role wasn't cut down in editing. Right, right. And uh, and and you know, if you're Anna Paquin and you get an offer to work with uh, with Scorsese, I I think one would take it. Oh, of course. Yeah. So there was that. Um, nice to see Harvey Keitel. Although I say Keitel has a smaller part. I wonder if there are other scenes. We'll see those if there are deleted stuff. And and yes, Ray Romano is now in the in the circle of Scorsese players because I know he was in uh, Vinyl on HBO right. and and now he's in this as as one of the lawyers. So I, I was really happy to see him. I I love. Right. He's he's <laughs> everybody loves Raymond. There it is. Yeah. But no, but it was but it's been fun to see him do obviously stretch out after the series that you know got him a kajillion dollars and he's been able to do different things like Men of a Certain Age and Vinyl and and be able to as you know comic actors use their when they're playing a dramatic role can find the little moments of levity needed in a performance and and he does that as as the attorney in the Irishman. So um so yeah, I I I really enjoyed it. I don't know if it's in the top 10 yet because I think once Thanksgiving is over, I start to accumulate that list. Um where where's it rank for you? Uh it it wouldn't be in my top 10 at the moment. Um if you go on uh, my Letterboxd account, I have given several Scorsese movies five stars, and um, this one would be a, a four star for me. Yep. So that's pretty good. That's pretty good. So yeah, it's out there. So see it, and I think I think Sam and I are in agreement. Definitely see it on a big screen. Yeah. Uh, during the kind of slow burn sequence, I mentioned you could have heard a pin drop um, in the theater. I mean, obviously it was just us, but. You know that's that's should be experienced in the theater. Absolutely. All right. Um, other films opening this weekend. Just just so we make note of this. Uh, Beautiful day in the neighborhood. The the new film that um, and and despite the ad campaign, Tom Hanks is is not the star of the film. It just so happens that he's in it as Fred Rogers. The other thing to consider is, and I will ask you this. I've not seen this, but I will ask you this. If you've seen, won't you be my neighbor? 
If you've seen, have you seen that before you go in to see this? It would be like seeing Man on Wire after before seeing The Walk. Or uh, there's been other documentaries that have been made later into feature films. This is this has that possibility. I'll just leave it there. Uh, Twenty One Bridges, uh, Chadwick Boseman's uh, gritty cop drama, something that's not Black Panther. That is also out there. Oh, and uh, and uh, Frozen Two, <laughs> <laughs> still letting it go, still out there. So uh, anyway, that that is that is out there. Um, what have you watched recently, Sam? Because when you haven't been like what like from last week's stuff. Um, well, I uh, I'm trying to catch up on our screeners. Yeah. Um, I have shamefully abstained from voting in the best animated film category for the last two years, um, just because uh, I'm, I don't know I'm bad about keeping up with animated films. I. I don't mean this as an insult to those who like them, but I'm just not a child anymore. Um, wow, that that was very harsh. I <laughs> no no no. It's, um, I don't rush out to see those. They're not your first or fifth choice, <laughs> right? But I did watch uh, Missing Link, um, which is a stop motion animated film from Leica Animation. Um, it's written and directed by the filmmaker behind uh, Paranorman. It does have that look. Um, I thought it was great. Uh, yeah? Yeah, it's uh, Hugh Jackman as um, kind of a, a monster hunter. Yeah, He's, an adventurer type. Perf- yeah. Kind of perfect casting for, for Mr. Jackman there. Exactly, and, and he's going after uh, the Sasquatch played by Zach Galifianakis. And and by the way, this Sasquatch is not as fussy and neurotic as Zach Galifianakis's uh, film persona. <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, they go to um, they try to find the Yeti, his you know, the Sasquatch's brethren, um, and it's a lot of fun. It uh, a lot of laughs, uh, really lovely animation. Um, Hugh Jackman's a, a hoot. Uh, it kind of has a nice message about um, belonging, um, so I really enjoyed that, and I'm I'm trying to be better about um, uh, keeping up with the animated films that we've nominated. And you have Abominable, so you'll have your Yeti double feature. Yeah, exactly. So that's taking care of. Oh, I, I should mention also opening in theaters this weekend is a is a European drama called Frankie. This is from uh, what's European, even though it's written and directed by an American, Iris Sachs. Iris Sachs is the gentleman who gave us uh, Love is Strange, the really nice uh, comedy with Alfred Molina and John Lithgow, Little Men with Greg Kinnear. Kinnear's in this one as well. It's you have Here's your cast. You have Isabel Huppert as an aging uh, famous actress who has organized a, uh, a family outing, family vacation slash meeting at a resort in Portugal. And uh, Brendan Gleeson plays her second husband. You have uh, Greg Kinnear and Marissa Tomei. Kinnear is a second unit director. And uh, Tomei is, if I remember right, she's in the business and was and is one of Huppert's big confidants. Hmm. And uh, Tomei and Kinnear are a couple, but Greg, and Greg wants to take it even further. Greg also wants to make his directing debut when he's not a second unit photographer on a Star Wars film. His his words, not mine. Um, so 
all of this is in this. You also have a uh, a couple with a daughter who may or may not be related, but it doesn't matter. They've been invited to this outing. So there's a lot of two-person scenes in Portugal. And what is surprising about the film is how, sub, how subdued it is. It is. This isn't, I will say, this isn't August Osage County, where, because we are gearing up for what I wrote in my notes is the big reveal, capital T, capital B, capital R, because the matriarch of the family has called everybody together. As the film goes on, you know what the announcement's going to be. And therefore, um, and there, there is tension with some couples, but it's there are no exclamation points in this film. And when we get to capital T, capital B, capital R, it's a really restrained way of showing it. So I, I would say if you're in the family drama with, with, going into Thanksgiving, if you're in the family drama that's not involving screaming but still having some heartfelt uh, and, and some heartbreaking moments, uh, Frankie's the film to check out. And that's playing over at Keystone Arts next to the Irishman. So there there you go over there. Hmm. All right. Uh, let's see. I want to mention over at uh, – at the Artcraft Theater in Franklin, of course, depending on how fast we get this out here when you listen to the show. Of course, this weekend at the Artcraft in Franklin, the Polar Express is being shown. Um, Sunday at 2 and 5.30 p.m., 2 and 7.30 p.m. on Saturday. Elf is in theaters. Is I guess Elf is one of those, it's, it's, it's almost like a, a Christmas story where a cable ca- channel could run it 24 hours a day. Oh, yeah. So, Are you an Elf fan? Yeah, I am. Um, not a Christmas story fan, but I'm an elf. An wow, really? Yes. Oh gosh, I haven't. Yes, I I think it's overrated. And and the thing is, when I tell people, they look at me as if I have wiped my my body with the American flag, and that I hate cinema. They I get come I, I get hit hard about <laughs> this. I and they're coming. I I get response as if I think it's the worst film ever made. It isn't. I just don't care. You yeah. will shoot your eye out. And <laughs> kudos to Darren McGavin being married to Melinda Dillon, all right? Gee. Well, <laughs> I guess it's a little unfair because I have, you know, a childhood attachment. Fine. To it, so. I was 13. And yeah. I, so, no, no, I, uh, I, and, and by the way, that's coming up here at the Art Craft. So thank you. Hello, Franklin. <laughs> Glad you're with us. <laughs> but um, I'm, I'm okay with you not being a huge fan of it. Okay, I'm thank you. I'm not attacking you. Okay, well, somebody else will. It's fine. <laughs> But but no, Elf was the first film where uh, they somebody was able to take Will Ferrell's energy and channel it in the right direction, and then that that's you know, and that's why it's still probably at the top, if not top three or top five Will Ferrell performances. So, uh, but yeah, this so if you want again, so you can see this on TV, but see it in a theater from two thousand. You know, this is a two thousand three film, so uh, to see it in on the big screen, November twenty ninth, thirtieth, and December first. Um, oh, at two o'clock because the seven thirty shows are sold out, and then two and five thirty p.m. on Sunday, December first. The film we just mentioned, A Christmas Story, December sixth, seventh, and eighth, two and seven thirty p.m. on Friday and Saturday, two and five thirty p.m. on Sunday. You're you're gonna go see it regardless of what I say. It's fine. <laughs> um, and then not Sam, just you people. <laughs> Uh, I'm sorry, Abdul. I don't mean you people. Lowercase y, lowercase p. Um, December 13th, 14th, and 15th, White Christmas. Um, 
There will be on Thursday, December 12th at 1.30 p.m. a free showing of White Christmas for those 55 and over, courtesy of Swartz Family Community Mortuary. So, um, mm. so anyway, um, you can check that out. You can go to art, historicartcrafttheater.org for all the information. But uh, White Christmas will be shown regularly December 13th, 14th, and 15th, 2 and 7.30 p.m. on Friday and Saturday, 2 and 5.30 p.m. on Sunday. And then December 19th, a.k.a. my 50th. Oh, nice. um, yes, 7.30 p.m. Thursday night, Christmas in Connecticut. And this is a members-only event. So if you go to historicartcrafttheater.org, and that's where you can go and become a member. Um, December 20th, 20th, 21st, and 22nd, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. The 2, uh, 2 p.m. on the 20th and 21st, because the 7.30 shows are already sold out. Wow. And then 2 and 5.30 p.m. on Sunday, the December 22nd. Uh, moving into January, uh, is it get, well, I'll tell you when it gets a little closer, but Viva Las Vegas, Spaceballs, The Great Muppet Caper, Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, all happening soon at the Historic Art Craft Theater in Franklin. Nice stuff there. Um, okay, let's see. New on DVD and Blu-ray this week. Oh, uh Dora, the the live action version of Dora the Explorer. Yeah, what happened with that? I don't know. Uh, I don't <laughs> I guess know. It's on DVD now. It is on DVD now, and if, if I remember right, um, when your parents are uh, Michael Pena and um, oh, uh, I am having oh Eva Longoria. Hey, mm. way to go, big guy. So, um, and yeah, Danny Trejo's in it as well. Um, now I oh. If you need a 4K Blu-ray version of the original Suspiria. Ooh, yes. There you go. Uh, Blinded by the Light, which uh, I I had uh, John Katzenberger on the show talking about this, the, the film of a Pakistani kid in the 80s in England hooked on the music of Bruce Springsteen. Um, well done ta- tale. A little, you know, a little cutesy at times. Uh, still recommending it, but please stop making music about my library, my music collection. You're going to mess it up eventually, and I, I'm, I'm afraid it's going to be David Bowie or somebody else that I really, really like. So there please, is a David Bowie movie coming out. I know, and yeah. that's what frightens me. So because we they've been for the last year. I mean, and uh, as I mentioned, it, you know, A Star Is Born and Bohemian Rhapsody and Rocket Man and Yesterday and this, and they've they they haven't been train wrecks. We're due for a train wreck, and I don't want it to be David Bowie. So please <laughs> don't do that. Um, Criterion. Oh, by the way, uh, there's a certain bookstore that's uh, having Criterion's half off until the end of the month. So yeah. if you're into that, um, the 2018 film Cold War now out on Criterion. That's a good treatment there. And uh, Betty Blue from 1986 also on Criterion. Uh, sent to me by uh, Film Movement. There's a there's two films. From uh, French Canadian director Philippe Lesage, pardon my French, literally, uh, from 2015, a film called The Demons, which uh, we have Felix, who is a uh, a kid that's uh, it's not quite welcome to the dollhouse. He he's not quite a misfit, but he like a lot of kids of uh, of middle school age um, or elementary or high school. Hmm. 
or college, you're f- or the workforce, you're finding your, you're trying to find your niche. Um, there's also been the parents are in a fight. Uh, there's there's those on again, off again friendships that you know sometimes you're playing and sometimes you're playing too hard, or sometimes you think you have a friend and they trick you uh, for practical purposes. And uh, there's also, as it's happening around town, there's there's been a series of missing children because of, uh, well, uh, f- bad. there's a bad person taking children, let's put it that way. And I think mm. what the film explores is when the adult world, the grown-up world, kind of comes crashing in on this kid. And, and a part of it is a, a really, you don't see the horrendous scenes for the most part. I think the 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 most off-putting moment you actually physically see as an audience member is this kid getting stuffed into a locker. But there is a really long sequence of a gym a, a gym teacher, a swim a lifeguard, a swim coach who picks up a child, not our not our lead in this, and does the uh, mom told me to pick you up, and takes him to the carnival, and then goes off into the woods. And we mm. see them go off into the woods, and that's. That's that. Oh, creepy. Yeah, it is creepy and upsetting, but uh, but like Greek theater, all the all the really horrendous stuff happens off stage. So uh, anyway, that is that is uh, from 2015 called The Demons. Three years later, uh, the same filmmaker did a film called uh, Genesis or Genesee. Of uh, this time, it's three different kids who are going through relationships. Uh, 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 we have a boy and a girl. We have a boy and a boy. And it, it on paper, it would feel tagged on at the end. But the Felix character from the demon comes back and is attending uh, summer camp. And uh, what happens when he finds a girl that he has a crush on? Mm-hmm. I will say the results are slightly better than the demon. So um, <laughs> interesting French-Canadian films that were sent to me via uh, via film movement. So um, I know you get stuff, I get stuff, and 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 this is this has been what is uh, helping cleanse the palate when we've been going through screeners. You have to do that, folks. Yeah. So, so you have to do that sometimes. This and the the uh, the box set of the complete series of China Beach has been helping me. But uh, I got in the mail from Mill Creek Entertainment. Uh, I got a Blu-ray of The Thing, and I vaguely remember asking for this. Um, however, I didn't realize this was the 2012 prequel, Ugh. not the John Carpenter one. So as soon as I opened up the box and it said, from the producers of Dawn of the Dead, I went, oh, yeah, they did do a, a prequel to this. So Kind of a random thing to send now. Um, I yeah I don't know why but they did and uh, it's a Norwegian shot in Norway mostly Norwegian cast although you have uh, Mary Elizabeth Weinstead and Joel Edgerton and no Joel Edgerton is not the Kurt Russell character this is basically th- the story of the alien being found and and then spawning and then you know if if you've ever seen John Carpenter's The Thing and I highly recommend that. The, the, even the Rick Baker work of the early 80s is still, still pretty good. Oh, yeah. Uh, but there's a lot of – if you've seen that, then you really don't need to see this 2012 version because uh, there's there's a lot of similar moments of being morphed into the creature and having to do blood tests and have you know not trusting one another, and it's, it's just kind of a retread. Yeah. So the other thing sent – and 
at first I, I realized it's a Kirsten Dunst double feature, but I think they're also doing this because because uh, Mill Creek also has a thing with uh, with Columbia. So on this, you have the 1994 film version of Little Women, which, of course, is getting ready for Greta Gerwig's version of it. And it's a Winona Ryder, Susan Sarandon, Gillian Anderson directed uh, Gillian Anderson, Gillian Armstrong directed it. Uh, really, really fine production. Really, really, and and there are several different versions of Little Women over the years. Um, so this one's pretty good. Also on it, and I had never seen this before. Sophia Coppola's Marie Antoinette. Hmm. Have you seen this? I have. Yeah, I thought it was great. It's it's what I remember seeing it in the campaign, and actually both of these films. I, I'm and I'm glad I was going to ask you about this, Sam. Is um, I'll start with Marie Antoinette. What I remember in the trailer was you have this, you know, because it's about said character in history in, is it 16th century? Uh, you know, during the during the kind of King Louis the, the 16th. And so you have a period piece with music of the 80s. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, this was before, no, this was after A Knight's Tale. I guess one could, one could blame slash thank a Knight's Tale or Moulin Rouge as far as taking music from a different era and pasting it on in this. What what I liked about Sofia Coppola's film, first off, it looks great. And it's uh, it's about uh, Kirsten Dunst's Marie Antoinette. She is basically moves from Austria to be the uh, the wife of a prince who will eventually become king of France. And yes, that future king is Jason Schwartzman. But you also get to see Molly Shannon and Rip Torn in an Asia Argento in uh, in and Steve Coogan and Danny Houston in in period garb. But uh, so a lot of it is the kind of prim and proper and all the rules that come with royalty. And once Marie Antoinette starts to develop her own style, her own character. That's when the modern music comes in. So I like that. It's not. I was expecting wall-to-wall music, and and that's not the case here. Hmm. What I the other thing was uh, this. This led to a couple discussions in my head. So I'm glad there's somebody here I can actually talk about this with. Hmm. Um, what did you? I guess your thoughts on on a Knight's Tale or Moulin Rouge when it comes to taking music from different eras and shoving them in. Um, I think in both of those cases, it made, um, you know, these costume dramas a little more accessible to a modern audience mm-hmm. that I think would maybe shy away from that genre of film. Um, uh, you know, because they might think costume dramas are, you know, stuffy and boring. Right. Um, I I loved the use of uh, you know Nirvana in Moulin Rouge. Yeah, I mean to me the it didn't you know take me out of those movies if that's what you're asking. Okay, I um because I could see where the music came in in Marie Antoinette, and I haven't seen A Knight's Tale probably since when it opened, so I need to probably revisit that. I love Moulin Rouge, and I think part of it is it's a heightened musical. Um, it, because it's Baz Luhrmann, because I I had seen. Um, uh, a strictly ballroom before that, and Romeo and Juliet before that. So there, there is this kind of frantic energy, and the fact that we're taking a, uh, a musical set in one era and shoving in, yeah, everything from disco to Nirvana to you know the Police, uh, but it's heightened. 
So I uh, I recently saw I recently saw a musical that's been making its rounds through community theaters and high schools. I'm not going to mention where, but it was it was of it, the, it's basically the pop musical Emma, hmm. and basically it it's. Everybody looks and dresses like Clueless, but without saying it's Clueless. Mm. And the production I saw, they specifically set it in the '80s, but if that's but that's the only thing they did. Um, they made costumes. You know, the costumes look straight out of. It, it looks like you know, it, it looks like the '80s. But there's songs from the '90s that. Uh, it, I'm I'm also the guy when Pirate Radio came out, and it was set in 1967. And if I'm hearing songs from '69, I'm calling it out. Right. And and but that's but it's not heightened. It's it's a it's a it's a period piece on on a simple scale, I guess. So I it. I just wondered if it's if it's heightened, do I accept it? If it's not heightened, I have a problem with it. I guess I, I, that's probably my dilemma. I suppose. Mm-hmm. The other thing, and I, I with uh, Little Women brought up here, and and if you if you have uh, two cents, and I know you do, you can go to msociatewfyi.org or on Facebook or on Twitter. Um, I had somebody a while back ask me if they should remake Casablanca. And I immediately, yeah, he he scrunched his face, folks. And yeah, I, I immediately wrote back, but not in all caps, like, no, no, we're we're fine. There was a TV show in the '80s, and I saw it, and no, we're really good. But there was a TV show. Are you ready? It sounds horrible. David Soul is Rick. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> Sam just caught some spit there, <laughs> and uh, and Hector Alessandro. Is uh, is uh, Claude Rains? Hmm. That's not bad. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. They actually tried to make a, a TV series of Casablanca. Now, now I know what Sam's going to look up when he leaves I'm here. I'm very curious. Yeah, um, yeah. It, didn't, it only lasted a handful of episodes, but however, and I I just kind of cringed at that, and I thought, well, maybe if you made because it's if you made a a film version of the play, everybody comes the Ricks, which is what Casablanca is based on. However, the flip side of that is between the BBC and PBS, every 10 years we'll get stuff based on classic literature. We'll get a Little Women, anything Shakespeare, anything – hi, Comey and Bianca – anything written by you know, an Austin or a Bronte or anything Russian. Um, I think part of that is because it's classic literature, and, and I use Shakespeare as an example, is – it's what you what your adaptation of the script is. Nobody does except for Ken Branagh and Hamlet. Nobody does the full Shakespeare play. What cuts do you make? What choices do you make? What eras do you set those in? Um, so that and so the fact that I'm I'm really fascinated with Greta Gerwig's Little Women. I enjoyed the Winona Ryder version. I enjoyed the Catherine Hepburn version. You know, there was one that was done for PBS with Angela Lansbury. Uh, gosh, I think last year. So we get them constantly, but I, I think it's the, the adaptation and the treatment of the material. That's why we, is we, after uh, the success of Romeo and Juliet, their 20th Century Fox did a modern take on Great Expectations with Ethan Hawke and, and uh, Gwyneth Paltrow and Robert De Niro. So anyway, I guess the fact that that interests me more than – you know, a prequel of the thing or, you know, how many people still think about the remake of Point Break? Yeah, I haven't. Or Fright Night. 
or you know just there's they're out there they're there because they're familiar by name mm. and uh anyway so that's 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 my dilemma thank you for letting me vent to you <laughs> so um moving on a little bit i i saw this uh sam and and i asked you to to think on this i'm going to read a little bit but this is fr- this is courtesy of my friend brian uh, brian g hearts who had this on his page somebody on twitter had written you can replace the cast of any movie with the Muppets, but you keep one of the human actors. What movie and which human do you keep? And we, my, my family talked about this years ago because we were talking about, you know, there was a, a Muppet Treasure Island and Muppet Christmas Carol. Of course, uh, Muppet Christmas Carol is going to be viewed many, many times in the next month or so by folks. Um and one time, Mrs. Sosi accidentally said Muppet Glass Menagerie. <laughs> and we immediately dove into that. We're like, well, Piggy's Amanda, and Kermit's got to be Tom, and Fozzie's got to be the gentleman caller. But you had, to have, uh, you had to have one human. And I kept pushing Emma Watson as Laura. <laughs> so anyway, this is, this is not fallen far from the Sosi mind. Brian Hartz writes, Amadeus, keep F. Murray Abraham. <laughs> That's funny. Which, and since F. Murray Abraham has done a Muppet film, sure. Lou Harry, our friend Lou Harry, writes, Heaven Can Wait, keep Jack Warden. <laughs> uh, Tom writes, Young Frankenstein, keep Cloris Leachman. <laughs> Uh, Luke writes, Crimson Tide, keep Denzel. Oh, that's great. Uh, Rachel writes, so I married, uh, I married an axe murderer, Keith, keep Anthony LaPaya. <laughs> um, Ed writes, The Princess Bride, keep Robin Wright. Jason writes, Silence of the Lambs, keep Anthony Hopkins. That's funny. Brian then counters and says, you mean you wouldn't want to see Dr. Honeydew play Lecter? So he he resends and goes, okay, Jodie Foster. <laughs> Justin writes, 300, keep Gerard Butler. Michelle wrote something else. Uh, oh, my buddy Ashley writes, sense and sensibility, keep Emma Thompson. <laughs> to which somebody wrote, I would vote to keep Alan Rickman. Uh, there's a lot of ladies and a few dudes that would agree with you there. Uh, Brian, Brian wrote, deep throat, <laughs> oh, God. keep Linda Lovelace. Moving on, uh, Edge of Tomorrow, keep Emily Blunt. Caligula, keep Malcolm McDowell. I did not write that. <laughs> um, oh, I'm not writing. I'm not reading that either. Um, Amy wrote A Clockwork Orange, keep McDowell. Lawrence of Arabia, keep Peter O'Toole. The Graduate, keep Anne Bancroft. And of course, Kermit has to be Benjamin. That's funny. Um, Sarah writes Legends of the Fall, keep Brad Pitt. Jennifer writes Casablanca, keep Humphrey Bogart. John writes Witness, keep Harrison Ford. Uh, Jeremiah writes Pulp Fiction, keep Sam Jackson. Eric writes The Three Musketeers, keep Oliver Reed, to which I wrote Women in Love, keep Oliver Reed. Hmm. If there's there's a wrestling scene, you'll know it. Uh, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, keep Joan Crawford. Silverado, keep Danny Glover. I am legend. Keep the dog. Birdman of Alcatraz. Keep Burt Lancaster. Donnie Darko. Keep Frank. <laughs> um, Rocky Horror Picture Show. Keep Riff Raff. Kermit plays Frankenfurter. <laughs> Jeez. Um, the Birdcage. Keep Robin Williams. Brazil. Keep Robert De Niro. 
my list, <clears throat> Schindler's List, uh, keep Ray Fiennes. Oh, God. Tommy, keep Roger Daltrey. And Janice is the Acid Queen, as Eric wrote. Jan- actually, Lynn, my wife suggested Janice is Laura in Glass Menagerie, so that's where we had the, the big debate. Um, I wrote Jaws, keep Robert Shaw. He would be so peed off. <laughs> Uh, the Room, keep Tommy Wiseau. That's that's a, that's an easy one. Godzilla, keep Raymond Burr. His Girl Friday, keep Cary Grant. Um, we're almost there. Uh, Titanic, Kate Winslet. Inception, DiCaprio. Fight Club, Edward Norton. Footloose, keep John Lithgow. Jeez. <laughs> Jacob writes Dune, keep Patrick Stewart, because it wasn't much of a chaotic mess and having him randomly appear in a Muppets cast cult film of that caliber would be glorious. To which Brian writes, I want to see giant Muppets sandworms. <laughs> um, Ocean's Eleven, keep Andy Garcia. Silverado, Kevin Klein. Joker, keep Joaquin. Psycho, keep Janet Lee. Big Lebowski, keep Goodman. Jeez, uh, we have a lot of time on our hands. All right, I'm, I, I should stop. Do you, do you have any that would, you would like to, to throw into the ring? Well, I was trying to think of, you know, disturbing movies. Um, uh, maybe Funny Games, keep Tim uh, oh, Roth. Ew, God. Um, Hold on, what are you doing? Conan the Barbarian, keep Arnold, maybe. The Deer Hunter, keep walking. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, <clears throat> I'm trying to think of who would play the Michael Pitt and Brady Corbett characters. Maybe the... Statler and Waldorf. The, the old critics. Yeah, Statler and Waldorf. Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> um, funny games. Yeah, maybe Little Miss Piggy is Naomi Watts' character. Jeez, oh, yeah. Gone with the Wind, keep Hattie McDaniel. Titanic, keep Kathy Bates. <laughs> All is lost. Keep Robert Redford. Hi. We see what you did there. <laughs> um, okay. Lou Harry's now jumping in. Give him hell, Harry. Keep James Whitmore. Elf, get rid of James Conn and keep everyone else. <laughs> wow. So, let's see. Uh, Robin Hood, Prince, keep Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio. But I believe they did a Robin Hood episode of The Muppet Show with Lynn Redgrave. Hmm. So, might need to double check that. Um Oh, here, we got a few more. The Goonies, keep Anne Ramsey. Uh, Avengers Endgame, keep Thanos. Okay, fine. Uh, Titanic, Kate Winslet. And then finally, Payback, keep Mel Gibson. That's funny. Oh, jeez. So, yes, thank you. Thank you, Internet. You've, you, thank you, Facebook. You've, you've done that. <laughs> um, okay. I think... Uh, we're going to wrap things up a little bit. We're going to go to, uh, as Chris Lloyd once famously said, dead people we like because we don't have time for dead people we don't like. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm confident to say Hall of Fame, that guy, Michael J. Pollard, passed away earlier this week. I believe he was 80. And what's funny is his career goes all the way back to the late 50s. Did a lot of TV. Yes, I'm getting the pages from INDB, whatever. Um but we go to, God, shows I haven't even heard, like uh, Five Fingers, Alfred Hitchcock Presents. He played Jerome Krebs, the brother, I believe, of uh, of Maynard T. Krebs in The Many Lives of Dobie Gillis. Did TV until the mid-60s, and then appeared in films like The Stripper, Summer Magic. Sam was saying earlier, he, we, it's, this is one of those guys, 
you'll find out what he looks like as soon as I hit you with a title that you know. Yeah. So, because that's what that guys and that ladies do. <laughs> um, going into mid '60s television, one that uh has a special place in our heart. He was in the episode Miri of Star Trek from the first season. This is the planet. This is the planet that is occupied by children. Kim Darby is on it. This was also at my daughter's first Star Trek episode. Hmm. So uh, he was uncredited but had a silent role in The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, played Pygmy in The Wild Angels, was Marvin in Enter Laughing, and then in 1967 received an Academy Award nomination, his only one, his Best Supporting Actor nomination as C.W. Moss in Bonnie and Clyde, okay. The Driver. Uh, later would do, appear in films like Jigsaw, Hannibal Brooks, Little Faust, and Big Halsey. I know Tracy Forner dropped that one. Uh, the Legend of Frenchie King, Morbidness, uh, Dirty Little Billy, Sunday in the Country, The Four of the Apocalypse, played Little Red and Melvin and Howard. Still bounce back and forth between TV and movies. I'm not even going through all of these. He's one of the older firefighters. He's Andy and Roxanne. Appeared in American Gothic, was Herman and Scrooged with okay. Bill Murray. Yeah, there you go. So next of kin, he was Harold. <clears throat> Played Owen and Tango and Cash, was Bug Bailey and Dick Tracy, was in The, Arri uh, the Arrival from 1991, uh, Arizona Dream, Mad Dog Time. The last thing I saw, well, he was uh, Mr. Cummings in Tumbleweeds, and the last thing I saw him in, he was Stucky in Rob Zombie's House of a Thousand Corpses. <laughs> So, but yeah, if you go through, there's, he was working constantly until about 2011, um, and then 2012, I should say. There's there's two films in post-production, according to IMDb, The Next Cassavetes and The Black Caesar. I don't know if Fred Williamson is involved in that, but he should be. But, uh, but yeah, constantly working that guy, Michael J. Pollard, thank you so much. So, so Sam, what uh, what would you like to plug over at the uh, the Midwest Film Journal? What's going on over there? Uh, well, I have a review of The Irishman up now. Um, next week, I'll have a review of Dark Waters. Um, See, Mark Ruffalo courtroom drama, right? Yes. Todd Haynes directed that. Yeah, surprisingly straightforward for him. Um, and it's we've kind of seen this story a few times before. It's about uh, poisoned water. Um, uh, kind of similar to a civil action, right? Uh, Aaron Brockovich, uh, about you know a fiercely determined lawyer trying to help these families who have been victimized by you know poisoned water. Um, uh, you know, decent movie. Uh, I, f I found it a little ham-fisted and how it revealed some of its information, but um, so I'll have that out. Um. <clears throat> While I'm here, I kind of want to apologize for the comment about uh, animated films. <laughs> I, nah. I, it's just I was more excited about them as a child. I guess that's what I meant. That, that's okay. They're, um, hmm. I'm, I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna word this carefully as well. I, I've, I've known people have said, um, I, I also know people who don't have kids that visit Disneyland. Hmm. So that's yeah, understand. It's all right. Oh, as as I'm on the Midwest Film Journal, MidwestFilmJournal.com, of course, um, you wrote about Alien Three. Oh yes. I need apparently I need to revisit that. Yeah. What is has and I know has they have, have they recut it? Is there a Fincher cut this time around? Because if I remember correctly, Fincher and Fox didn't get along while making this one. 
Yeah, he completely disowns the movie. He's, you know, publicly said that he he hates it and um, he won't watch it again. Uh, there isn't a Fincher cut. I just I wrote about that for the um, October horror themed comedy no series. No sleep October. Yeah, no sleep October, and um, <clears throat> Alien Three is actually my personal favorite of the franchise. I know that's kind of a hot take. Take it. Um, <clears throat> but um, I think the, you know, I love the gothic horror feel of it. Um, it's, I think, the weight of Ripley's history and relationship with the alien is most palpable in that one. Uh, she has one line where she says... Uh, You've been in my life so long, I can't remember anything else. Um, there's something really tragic about that. And actually, last year, I saw um, The Passion of Joan of Arc, the 1922 silent film. Mm -hmm. And I actually found a lot of uh, parallels between that and Alien 3 in terms of, um, you know, Ripley being this heroine who's trying to open uh, men's minds to the possibility of, you know, otherworldly life. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I think there's there's a lot to Alien 3. I know it's kind of dismissed as one of the weaker films in the franchise, but I love it. Okay. I, I do remember, I remember having the write about this for the college paper, and yeah, I, I didn't like it. And I think part of it, now looking back as I'm older, I know, I remember the visuals, and, and of course... You know, Fincher got his start in music videos, and this was kind of his first major film opportunity. But then again, you know, despite all the problem that happens with that, we we eventually get some payback with Seven. Mm. So that's that's pretty good. <laughs> um, but I think it was also a reminder of if you hadn't figured it out by the third Alien film, is that you know each director is going to bring a different tone of storytelling to it. You know, you have Ridley Scott, and and you know the first Alien is still highly regarded and as well it should be, and it's a, you know, it's a great science fiction kind of almost haunted house picture, and then you have James Cameron's swashbuckling rock'em sock'em robots thing, and you know that 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 jumped uh, Sigourney Weaver into action heroine status, which we're all happy with, and. And I'm sure Mr. Fincher thought, eh, I'm not going to do either one of those. I'm <laughs> going to make this one really somber by comparison. Alien Resurrection's the same way. Prometheus is the same way. And everything else that's been alien-related since. So um, I guess it, it, it's, it, it's almost reminiscent of you have to remember that you get a different director, usually with the Bond film. And mm. they're going to bring their own kind of swing to it. So. Yeah. All right, so that is the MidwestFilmJournal.com, so go check that out. So, Sam, I, I appreciate hanging out with me and taking a break from screeners. Oh, yeah, of course. It was a pleasure. All right, ladies and gentlemen, some words to live by. Silent Breed is people! Zardoz has spoken. Go see a good movie. You deserve it. But before we go, I'm, I'm going to be Columbo on this one. I, for, I forgot to mention this. On last week's show, we paid tribute to actress uh, Virginia Leith, who uh, we said is, is immortalized more than anything else as the head in the pan in the film The Brain That Wouldn't Die from 1962, a mystery science theater favorite. Um, and it was, uh, it's also a note because... Uh, there's a group of guys that I watch movies with whenever possible on Thursdays, and then we go we talk we talk about the movie and then go have lunch. 
And uh, we watched that film this week. And I forgot that it was also this past week on Monday, the 30th anniversary of the first broadcast of Mystery Science Theater 3000 on the Comedy Channel, which would later become Comedy Central. So, you know, happy anniversary to that. We are all the better for that. Uh, appreciate that. But the other thing I made note of in her career, she did a, a slew of television and some movies. She was in the original A Kiss Before Dying, Tower of the Unknown, Violent Saturday. Her first film, she's listed as The Girl from 1953's Fear and Desire, which is also the filmmaking debut of Stanley Kubrick. And I, f I forgot I had this on Blu-ray. I found this at, at Half Price Books, and it's, you know, we, we have piles of stuff we haven't looked at. Well, good reason to dig into this one. And it's, it's about a, a group of American soldiers six miles in, at, behind enemy territory and uh, their way of trying to get out. Basically, and uh, and Virginia plays the girl. She's a uh, she's working uh, with two other girls on a river. Kind of wanders out into the woods and is captured by the American soldiers. Now, as I said, this is 1953. Kubrick was already established as a photographer, and uh, you know, don't go in expecting a, a masterpiece. It's only. 61 minutes long, thank God. Um, be, but there are moments of either use of photography or just camera work that show the early presence of what is going to become a master for filmmaker. There's some really nice-looking shots. That, uh, that helps balance out the really low-budget and the really limited acting by the by the soldiers. Although I should should be noted, filmmaker Paul Mazursky was one of the soldiers in this. Huh, but the, but there is a moment where the girl is tied to a tree while the others are looking for uh, for provisions, and and there's one kind of spastic guy that you needed grilled pineapple to put on him. It was that uh, that over the top and that broad. So. Uh, an interesting footnote, if you are a uh, Stanley Kubrick fan and you want to complete the collection, Kino uh, video put it out there. So, uh, yeah. So so anyway, thank you, Virginia Leith, and thanks for being in Kubrick's first film and Mike Nelson's first episode of Mystery Science Theater as a host. So salute. Go see that or go see a good movie. You deserve it. You're listening to Film Sociology, a film talk show or a film podcast here on WFYI.org. Good afternoon, Fort Myers. Good afternoon, California. Good afternoon, Michigan. I can't believe you've let her watch Manoff. <laughs> Is she scarred for life? Let's put it this way. What parent are you? <laughs> when I wake her up, I vocalize the theme to wake her up to get oh, her ready to school. Oh, you're a terrible father. <laughs> we'll do it live. Okay. No. We'll do it live!